G'day and welcome to the Hunter's Campfire Podcast. My name's Mark and along with good mate Ian, we're here to help with all things hunting. If you're looking to start but don't know where to begin, you want to make the most of your next trip away or even plan to hunt of a lifetime, we've got something for you. You'll find our podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon and plenty of others. And if you want more, head over to our YouTube channel. The Hunter's Campfire, where we have plenty of how-to and hunting videos along with the full video production of every podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and good hunting. Well, good morning, guys, and it is good morning. Uh, we usually do this at night, so it's, a, it's an interesting one. Uh, so with us today is obviously Jono and Ian and uh, Nick Demetto from North Queensland. G'day, Nick. How are you? Not too hey, bad. Mate, do that Thanks, again. Mark. Do that Thank again. You, do that again. Holy, there's a story. <laughs> Holy wow. well. That was a good shark. <laughs> well, there we've got our first story. So, uh, how's life in North Queensland? You know, it's uh, it's absolutely brilliant this time of year. We're just coming off the back of the peak of winter and. There's no better time to be in North Queensland. We have a lot of southern tourists come up, uh, an influx of the grey nomads, and even the locals love it. It's the kind of time of the year where you can pretend that we do have a winter. You can put a coat on for five minutes, but uh, and then, like I said, it's getting back to normal pretty soon. It'll be summer before you know it. Yeah, well, we're actually in Darwin in three weeks. Uh, oh, well, well yep. we're landing in Darwin, then leaving Darwin straight away, but we're chasing Buffalo in three weeks, so yeah. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you we were on a call yesterday, and this is how I was dressed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right, and now we're going, we're going up to Darwin, and I'm going to, yeah, it's going to be fun. Anyway. Yeah, I, it was well, just. All I can say is Darwin has two seasons, hot or wet. That's yeah. it. It's either yeah. raining or you can cut the humidity with a knife. Yeah. So we're, we're like going to we're going to Mataranka. Uh, that's it. So we'll, we land in Darwin, oh, pick up the, the, the crew and head to Mataranka. And we're on a, a private block there for um, for, for most of the, the working week and then back again. So, yeah. And hopefully we'll um, encounter buffalo, pigs and various other Pretty interesting cool. game. Now, mm-hmm. you're, I, you're from Hinchinbrook area. So where are you based actually up in North Queensland? Because that's, you know, it's... Past the Pine River, yeah, so basically the, North Queensland. So where where in that? <laughs> so I grew up in a small town, which is in the middle of the Hinchinbrook electorate called Ingham. Yep. Uh, predominantly settled by Italians after World War One and Two. Um, oh. Very heavily Italian settled community. And I actually live in the northern beaches of Townsville now. So the Hinchinbrook electorate spreads from the northern beaches of Townsville at the Bowley River and goes all the way up to about Tully Heads oh, okay. and Silkwood. Now that's halfway between Cairns and Car and and um, Townsville. Because yeah. I years ago did the uh, is it the Thorsberg track on Hinchinbrook? The Thorsborn Trail. Yeah, Thorsburg, I did, I, I've done it as well. Only about three months yeah. ago with my wife. Brilliant, isn't it? Well, yeah, we did. We and so we did it technically in reverse. Most people seem to go from north to south. We went through from Lucinda up and then caught boat yeah, back, to, back Card- to Cardwell. Yep. Um, we got advised to do that because. Um, because you kind of travel with the same group. If you found a group that you didn't like, you know, you, you got you met new people every night as you were because you were walking Certainly. against them. But caught the train no, up. That's the, right. Caught the train up. Got a, got a lift to Lucinda and did the island. It was a yeah, lovely place. 
you know, Hinchinbrook Island, it really is, it feels like you're walking through Jurassic mm. Park in some of the areas there. It's completely untouched. Uh, and, you know, it, fly over it with a helicopter and you can really take it into perspective. There's a huge valley in the middle of the island, which, you know, there could be a sports stadium in there or, or another town and no one would even see it from the coast. It's just massive. And there's that peak there that has uh, the, the, you know, there's a peak on the island and there's a, a rock pool just below that peak. And, That's and right. Remote, remarkably cold water. It is. So you've got Zoe Bay and Mulligan's Falls, and both those are just so picturesque, but some of the cleanest, most beautiful water you'll ever swim in or even drink, just so pristine. And Hinchinbrook Island is actually the largest island national park in the um, the Southern Hemisphere, so it's it's absolute treasure to have right there. Not only is the the nameplate for Hinchinbrook Electorate, but also uh, having that as one of our main tourism attractions is pretty special. The only challenge of it is is the rats that live in the camps. That's just amazing. They've actually started building these um, these steel frames to hang yeah. the packs off now. That's the only way to um to keep the rats out of the bags at night. But yeah, yeah they um my wife uh, heard heard them trying to scratch yeah. into the tent. Now <laughs> she didn't let me sleep in the tent with her, and I didn't really want to. I don't like sleeping on the ground. I want to sleep in a hammock. Uh, but yeah, I had no rat problems, and she definitely did. Yeah, <laughs> when we were there, that people used to just take plates. This is about two, yep. and you'd basically just hang a string. And, you know, put a, push a hole through a plate, and make a little, and hang your packs and everything up because. And but at yeah. night you could hear them literally underneath your tent, scaring around and stuff like that. Because uh-huh. yeah, they're pretty friendly. Yeah, they they want to be part of they want to be part of your camp. That's for sure. Oh yeah, is this a pest problem or are these a native something? Oh, they're they're just a native bush rat. Um, you know, being opportunists. Mm. Uh, mm. If you're a backpacker or um, or a bushwalker on the island, you usually got a snack with you, and much easier to come and eat your snacks than go a phone. Want find one if you're a little bush rat, I reckon. Yeah. And yeah, because definitely. it's a it's a dedicated trail, you can't just camp anywhere. You know, everywhere there's like yeah, five or six good. stops, and that's what right. you have to do is you oh, basically. Yeah. You have to kind of say, oh, I reckon I can make this one. So you, you've got to do a little bit of planning on your hike. Um, yeah, that's right. And so but it is, the rats know that, so they kind of they're all, <laughs> they know where you're going to be. And it's actually being classified as uh, one of the top five hikes in the world. It is really? absolutely spectacular. Yeah, really? it's up wow, there in the okay. top five hikes of the world. So um, we, we encourage people to get over there and check it out and like I said, it's just pristine, it's untouched, and there's an opportunity for um for people to get over there and just enjoy something yeah. that not everyone gets to. It's that wonderful um, it's the only time I've ever done it, but you're actually hiking on a beach. That's the weird thing, you know. It's not yeah, like it, kites, it, it, you, know, you tend to think they're That's alpine right. or something like that, but no, you're at sea level hiking along big open beaches. Um, yep. Yeah, it's quite yeah, a no, nice place. Pretty pretty awesome. And of course, fishing through the Hinchbrook Channel. You know, if you're in the Barramundi mangrove, Jack. Uh, and a number of brim species, of course, you know, the Hinchinbrook Channel is home for yeah. you. We get so many people. So the Lucinda boat ramp, we spent a lot of money doing the boat ramp and the, uh, and the, in the car park up recently in the washdown area. And literally people travel from all over the East coast of Australia to come over and check out the Hinchinbrook Channel. It's, yeah, oh. it's about 53 kilometers long mm. and it's just absolutely pristine. Uh, there's a couple of big bodies in there as well. Yeah. And, um, sure. yeah. it still happens these days, but back in the day, um, so talking 20 years ago, people actually used to have ski races up the Hinchinbrook channel, water ski races, uh, just very similar <laughs> that the guys would do down South and ladies would do down South, yeah. so the Hawkesbury river or the Mildura 100 or the Sydney bridge to bridge, uh, 
imagine doing that with a couple of uh, six meter crocodiles up you know up up your backside. It's, it's, it's pretty much yeah, 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 yeah. not to pull off. Yeah. I was thinking sharks, but that's a different type of boy. Yeah. I remember yeah. that when we were. We've got bull up. sharks as well, don't you worry. They'll um yeah. Yeah. try to share their other meals around. Well, strange enough, you talk about. Sorry, sorry, Ingo. I had that when I was I was um, getting off a boat up in Darwin, and I was worried about the sharks. And an old old mate is just stepping mm-hmm. off the boat on the, who was standing on the jetty. He said, "Don't worry about the bull sharks, mm-hmm. mate. They're not around here anymore." And then you take your first step off the boat. He goes, "Crocodiles ate them all." You <laughs> <laughs> start bouncing off as fast as you can. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny you say that one of the last ski races we had at a place called Taylor's Beach, which is also in the Hinchinbrook electorate. This is back in two thousand. Uh, they actually caught two large tiger sharks at the front of the beach just before the race, and one had a crocodile in its stomach and one had a, uh, a turtle in its stomach. Yeah. So, yeah, don't worry about the crocodiles up here. We've got the tiger sharks yeah. that are eating them as well. Oh, <laughs> strange enough, we're talking about skiing. Um, David Brown from um, Shooters Union Australia. Yeah. He said he, – he, he, we just did a very uh, short-form pod, podcast with him at the um, Toowoomba Expo. Yep. And he he made he made some mention. He said, "Oh, when you're speaking to Nick, mention water skiing." And I said, oh, "I'm not going to carry the water for you. If you've got something to say about his skiing, you can do that, mate." But he said hello. <laughs> Uh, Dave is an absolute legend and uh, he, he does an important job for not only protecting our rights as firearm owners across, licensed firearm owners across Queensland, but also uh, for promoting the good work that our, our um, re- recreational hunters do. Yeah, that's it. We had a really good chat actually. And strange enough, um, he turned it around and started talk, interviewing me, which he was the first, at first and only person to do that. But I think, that, I think that's his normal operating style. He certainly is a pretty good operator. Okay. So let, let's kind of move on. I, you know, obviously for us, uh, the hunters campfire, hunting, fishing, outdoors is, well, I suppose it's what, what we, we do. do, you know. It's it, life. It's, it's, it's life. life. It's life. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to say mm-hmm. it. It's life. It's not a, it's mm-hmm. not a pastime. Um, it's certainly not a um, uh, financially viable activity <laughs> like that. If you just see it as a hobby or a pastime, you don't get any good at it, I'll tell you that. That's right. Oh. <laughs> so uh, let, let's, get, let's get a better understanding of your, your, where you fit into that picture. So if you could give us an understanding of you know, your hunting and fishing, that would be great. Yeah, so I tell you, uh, my, um, my background is I grew up in a small sugarcane farm just outside of Ingham, a place called Hawkins Creek. And, you know, as a, as a child, you know, as soon as you hit the age of ten, you're um you, you're given a daisy and pretty much anything with a with a set of feathers or stood stood still long enough um yeah cops a daisy bullet, uh or, or lead. Uh, unfortunately, you know things things weren't done right. I think when it comes to um hunting back in the day, uh you know I, like I said earlier, I come from an Italian background and I always make the joke. You know I grew up um, duck shooting, uh you know feral pest shooting, pig hunting, those sorts of things. And I always make the joke, if the Italians were here for another generation earlier, we would have probably wiped out every black duck in North Queensland. Uh, We come pretty close. Uh, But, you know, seeing things change in that space, we've seen a lot of the um, the animals actually uh, replenish. You know, I try and talk about crocodiles and black duck in the same sentence because Everyone said we've got a crocodile problem here in North Queensland at the moment until a point where uh, my party and myself have been advocating not only for the ability to go and harvest some of these crocodiles as um, recreational hunters, but also an opportunity to try and thin out some of these numbers to make our waterways safer. Now, when I was growing up, um, we'd go duck shooting when it was still legal in Queensland, Mm. I must say that. 
Um, when it was still legal in Queensland, we used to travel nearly three, four hours to go and shoot a duck. Uh, that's how you know scarce they were. Now, same thing. You never saw a crocodile. You never saw a crocodile around the same same time because during the seventies, we we almost wiped the crocodiles out in North Queensland. Now. Mm-hmm. We're seeing numbers of those animals come back in such large numbers. Now, when it rains, not only do we see ducks walking down the, the, the gullies and the water furrows and drains around the small town of Ingham, that's how many of the numbers have come back. Also, crocodiles do the same thing. They're moving around in areas. So we've got to start opening that conversation up, I think, more around uh, whether or not it's time to start looking at are we able to safely take these species and manage them properly and um, actually use them as the resource which they could be intended to do. But like, back to m- more um, my hunting background. So like I said, yeah, growing up, hunting, um, we used to shoot duck, but also uh, feral pigs and stuff like that for pest management. And, you know, something, something happens uh, when, you're, when you're young and you go out on your first hunt. And I, and I truly believe every young man or even young f- women out there should actually get this opportunity. Something, di- you know, I guess whether it, it happens on a, on a psychological level or a chemical level, I'd love to see the research on this, but there seems to be a profound appreciation on where your food comes from um, mm. after the first time you shoot something and then clean it and, uh, and cook it yourself. It's, it's something um, I think every, every human should actually go through that process because, like I said, you, you, you actually get a profound appreciation of the food, uh, the resource, and also uh, the management of it moving forward. And I don't think a lot of people that live in cities actually really get that. Therefore, I don't think they really get hunters. Mm. Yeah, yeah, we do. Mm. We do a lot mm. of mentor hunting through mm. clubs. And one of the comments that was made a year or so ago with a new hunter that we took out, the amount of effort that goes into finding a property, getting to a property, finding an animal, taking an animal, and then caring for that animal after you've shot it yep. so that it can be processed in such a way that you can get it home into the freezer. He yeah. said, I mm. had no idea how much care you put into these carcasses once they're yep. so that you can break them mm-hmm. down. It's yep. incredible. It's the first time he really experienced that, and I thought that was a great comment, mm-hmm. just to back what you were saying. No, no, and that's I true. I'll ask, ask you a different question while I can. Mm. Um, the crocodile thing that you talked about a second ago, mm. what would people use them for if they could be harvested sustainably? I've, I've, I've eaten yeah. one or, or a part of one. Hold on, hold on. The obvious handbags and belts. <laughs> what, what would the recreational crocodile hunting process be? You I know, um, I mean, yeah, so the way I see things at the moment is we've got crocodile numbers, which I think at a sustainable biomass level at the moment to be harvested. Now, I think we should be looking at crocodile very similar to uh, you know, barramundi, lobster, coral trout, um, once we've gotten to a certain biomass level, we should be, and even the other animals that we have in our um, ecosystem on land, um, whether it's uh, ducks or, um, or any other native animals that we've got on land based as well, getting to a point where we go, okay, well, we've got enough now that we can sustainably remove some of these. So, yes, we need to allow some of the recreational hunters to do that but also uh, making sure that commercial opportunities exist. Now, with the commercial opportunities mm. as well, so, for example, there could be a tag system for recreational hunters to go out and take a couple of year. Um, there's quite a financial benefit to the state if they were to run a tag system like that. But also for commercial operators as well saying, you know, you may have a licence to remove 15 crocodiles a year from the ecosystem between 1.5 to 3 metres of length, yeah. you know. Um, mm. And the... 
the opportunity mm. for not only trophy hunting, uh, which there is a, a quite a large market for that, uh, let's be fair oh, and yeah. honest, but also oh, the yeah, opportunity definitely. for taking those crocodiles that can be processed for meat or sent to crocodile farms to be able to be used. So when I say hunting these crocodiles, not always um, euthanizing them or, 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 um, or hunting them with rifles, but also trapping them could be an opportunity to be removing them to send to cro crocodile farms because at the moment, all crocodile management is being left up to the department. There is no third party so um, able to actually go out there and trap crocodile at the moment. So Department of Queensland, sorry, Queensland Parks and Wildlife Services are lumped with that whole responsibility at the moment. And, you know, you can get uh, damage mitigation permits for wildlife um, um, re removalist groups or, um, or businesses to take everything from uh, remove flying foxes all the way through yeah. to um, to you know yeah. removing uh, magpie geese, which are a native species off runways and stuff like that. But you can't get out there and remove crocodiles. So I think there needs to be changes in that legislation. This is a risk factor, surely. It's not not as difficult to remove a flying fox than it is to remove a, <laughs> a crocodile for the average punter. Yeah, but with the with the right uh, training, with the right um, ability to get in there and actually educate people on how to do this properly, and you know, I thought think if you um you know if you allowed people to get out there recreationally and remove crocodile or get allowed people, and I'm talking, you know, you're not allowed to legally shoot in a public place at the moment in Queensland. Of course, there's um there's risk attached to that, but you should be able to go to a private property and remove a crocodile recreationally sure. from that area mm -hmm. if you've got a permit, I believe, and you've got the permission of the landholder. At this point in time, mm -hmm. you're not allowed to do that. Even as the landowner right now, you could have you know, 30 head of cattle being taken by a crocodile on your property. And unless Queensland Parks and Wildlife want to come down and remove it right now, that's your problem and you can't do anything about it. Yeah, right. Mm. Interesting. That mm. is. And, and, and it's an important point, you know, well. you said like, you know, when you, know, as, uh, when you were young, you know, the, there was very few duck and very few crocodiles and now there's, you yep. know, there's, there's, and you can, you can associate that with the fact that there's, you know, the removal of, duck legal duck hunting and removal of, of uh, hunting of crocodiles but there's also a fact that things just change i mean That's you right. know you talk to property owners like i've hunt, hunted down here in the downs and on one property in particular that that family had been on that property for a number of years and they remember when there was no kangaroos there yep you know yep. there was wallabies and rock wallabies but sometime in the past mm. eastern gray started turning up yeah and over the period of time, they became the dominant species on that yep. area because, you know, they cleared paddocks, they created permanent water and things like that. So yeah. as we continually change the environment around us, and I don't mean destroy it, but actually just simply change yeah, it. change it, yeah. We're going to see these changes within, and I like that term, biomass. Always try and learn something at my in these podcasts. That's <laughs> well, the reason I use the term biomass, that it's is how great... agriculture agriculture and fisheries actually describe everything out there in, mm. in fishery. So um, they measure through modelling and um, some of the statistics they take from, um, you know, recreational fishes and commercial fishes to get, a, a, I guess, a, an accurate description of what the biomass looks out, like out there. So usually around 60% total biomass is what they aim for. They like to keep it around that. Anything below 20% biomass, we're in danger with the species or, we're in da or we need to do something to manage the species differently. They're about to do that with Spanish mackerel, for example. So mm. um, the, 
Yeah, 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 yeah. and mm. you know, there's people out there that don't agree with the modelling and all that sort of stuff. I'm not going to get into that, but uh, if that's the way they manage mm. other species which within the fishery, I think we could be applying the same methodology to managing yeah. things like crocodile. It makes sense. Yeah, and what a unique opportunity yeah. for Queensland and the Northern Territory. But yeah, for of Queensland, like we we've just come out of the uh, the Outdoor Adventure Expo that was held in Toowoomba uh, and spent a bit of time with uh, DPI Joe, and yep. um, as he loves to be called. Now. <laughs> But Joe, um, you know, he, he talks about the $1.9 billion worth of economic value that they have out of the R licence system. So that, yep. that's and, you know, DPI New South Wales? That yeah. That's just New South Wales, mm. yeah. Um, we, um, we don't have that here, obviously, but the, the crocodile discussion is super unique. And the income that could come in, even to a private landholder, like you say, yes. for an overseas trophy hunter, the Australian crocodile is very unique. Absolutely. So, oh, absolutely. That's, yeah. I mean, people people pay to go to uh, yeah, Africa. No, to I've, go got to friend, I've got a friend oh, that does huge, that quite yeah, often. He's, yeah. you know, he's um, been around the world and he's trophy hunted nearly everything except a polar bear, he said. And I said, why not a polar bear? And he said to me, Nick, um, because it's too cold. <laughs> uh, he's a bit of a he's a bit of an elf in the sky, but yeah, he's done this legally across the world. And um, he said, "Mate, you're missing mm-hmm. out on a massive opportunity here in yeah. regional Queensland to but, capitalise yeah. on a pest, uh, which right now is uh, creating a very unsafe scenario in your waterways." And look, that's really mm-hmm. a, a, a big part of what we talk about a lot, and not only just. I mean, obviously, from a unique point of view, there's a crocodile, but um, you know, nearly all of our videos on our, on our, on our YouTube channel are us hunting in New South Wales, yeah, on public land, yep. because we yep. can't do that here. And like, you know, last last hunt was for me was Nundle with, and I took my son, and you know, five days. Mm. Yep, and spent fuel, spent fuel, you know, money on fuel, on food, on all sorts of things over the border, and I, I paid New that... South Wales a license yep. and the whole lot. I guess that's a really good segue, Mark, into um, some of the work that I've been doing politically since I take, uh, took office in 2017. Now, um, we have ruffled a few feathers up here in, um, in Queensland when it comes to state forest and um, alloca- unallocated state land hunting here in Queensland. So there are organisations that are allowed to get in there at the moment and do some of that hunting. Um, mm. but, and I believe, I truly believe that we should be following the New South Wales model where we're allowing recreational hunters into these places. Now, there's a huge industry that works off the back of this, and I don't have to talk about the economic uh, benefits to yourself, Mark. You just pointed most of them out. People going out there and spending money on hotel spends uh, and overnight stays, restaurants and cafes, they're buying stuff, fuel, ice, bait, and not bait, sorry, uh, bullets, um, and that's more fishing. <laughs> but, yeah, getting out there and spending money in our regional towns, and there's nothing more uh, expensive <laughs> than going away for a hunting trip, I, I can tell you that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I think I'm, I think my deer is about like three hundred bucks a kilo. To be honest, if I, if I was if I was yeah. honest, it's about three hundred bucks a kilo. So, sorry to talk about fishing again, but that's why we call it fishing and not catching because sometimes that's right. you don't. Same as when you go yeah. out to hunt a deer, sometimes you just don't get one. That's uh, right, hunting not shooting. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but mm-hmm. no, I, I see that there's a huge benefit not only to the state but also. Um, to the economic benefit of our small regional towns. And mm. one problem that the state does oh, yeah. have at the moment is, uh, especially in Queensland, 
Queensland has this, you know, this drive the state government at the moment to start you know, buying up national parkland. Now, mm. they've bought up um, a lot of st- you know, stations west of my electorate um, that have now been converted back to national park. And unfortunately, there isn't, the money's not there to actually manage these things. Everyone will tell you in North Queensland the worst neighbour to have, whether you're a farmer, a grazier, whatever, is, an, is the state government in, in, in a national park. Yeah. They haven't got yeah. the money to do the pest management, the weed management, all these things, right? So um, there, is, there is a way to get in there and actually use recreational hunters to actually start uh, mitigating some of this pest risk, uh, bringing those numbers down in, in, a, in a very controlled way. And like in New South Wales, you create this whole industry when it comes to training people to make sure they're in there ethically hunting, making sure the mm. licensing's being done. So there's plenty of fat in this for the state government, and it also fixes a practical problem they have when it comes to feral press management. Yeah, and it also it, it provides a, a return on investment that you just don't get. Like, I mean, oh, there's you know, there is a place for hol- helicopter coal, but if you were to, from a purely dollar point of view, say compare per goat helicopter coal to recreational hunting, mm. the cost of the state government per goat from helicopter compared to the cost of this, it's actually, in a way, it's kind of a, it's, it's a sunk loss for the hunter and, and, and a no loss for the government type, type of arrangement. So it's certainly there is a, there is a, 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 it seems a ridiculously easy economic argument to understand around this. Yeah, and, you know, I think what happens um, within government and government departments is they like to really um, ensure that they've, they're assuming no risk. And mm, doing yeah. something that they don't understand and doing something that they haven't done before um, invites a whole lot of risk in. And uh, one thing I've found with departmental people is they don't want to take on a risk that hasn't um, been, you know, completely debugged um, and they yeah. understand everything and, I think just saying, oh, we should adopt what's happening in New South Wales, I don't think that's, you know, it's it's almost like you've got to plate this up for the state government to, to basically say, well, this is exactly how you introduce this. This is the reforms you need to do. These are the regulatory and legislative things you need to play with, and then this could be actually done. But um, they know they have a problem, um, but also I don't think they um, they want to assume the risk uh, because no one wants to have the finger pointed at them when something does bugger yeah. up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've got to wonder at what point, though, they look at the statistics. So there is a process down south that works and there's been zero deaths or major yep, incidents in the, the many years mm-hmm. that our licence has been run. Yes. Victoria, they may have had different successes, but by and large, the, the, the risk isn't there. No. Two big states in Australia are functioning quite happily. So you, mm. you sort of think that you can write the argument off to two other statistics, but it's still a struggle for people. Many mm. people will try. Yeah. It's interesting to see how to mm. have another run at it at some point. Yeah, and the risk thing is very interesting when you talk about that because if you look at it from a risk point of view, you would actually assume the risk would be greater in New South Wales mm. because literally kilometres to density. Yep. And no, when you got to Victoria, you mm. would think the risk would be even greater again because yeah. the most, you know, second most populous state, smaller state. Sorry, Alpine and, and Alpine right. regions. And, and, and again, it's density, whereas here you, you're actually, you know, you'd have a much a lower rate of, you know, per hunter per square kilometre type thing. But you, you're dead right. I mean, risk is... I, risk I, is to be avoided at all costs and, um, yeah, that's it. And so it's easier to do nothing mm. than it is to consider what you might be able to do. Yeah, you know, I think... Um, 
when you when you talk to people within departments that have no idea uh, what we do out there in the in the space we operate in, um, they probably think of the ugly scenes, you know, of the nineties of places like Polythanga, for example, um, the big shoots they used to have uh, in the southwest of Queensland, where um, unfortunately you had you know green groups out there trying to you know scavenge the ducks and try and save them while the while the hunters were still hunting, and you know it was yeah. it was ugly scenes, um, and, and that's perhaps mm. one of the things that they're trying to avoid here. Um, so uh, I. I don't know what the answer is for them, um, but I know that we can play a huge part in trying to uh, work through that space with them. Yeah, I always think of that scene out of um, Wake and Fright. When everyone up, people realise I'm a hunter, I think they think I'm in Wake and Fright. You know, yeah. I'm on top of a ute running around a paddock at night shooting kangaroos yeah. with you know, a bottle of rum in my hand. <laughs> yeah, it's just that that's what, yeah. what people associate with. And, it's it, you know, there is a... There is a, a, the term social license is, is I love often that. used around that. You know, the, the, the big part about a, that, uh, Mark, is now that may be how things were done 30 years ago. Um, yeah. Let's be fair and honest. Um, people, we've mm-hmm. come a long way. And just like we all now have to have a social license, I believe, in whatever we do, I also believe people have developed what I call an eco-conscience. Uh, the kind of people that right now, they don't throw their cans out the window of the car while they're mm. driving along or, you know, their McDonald's mm. pack. Obviously, there's still people that do that sort of uh, that rubbish. Um, but most people that are hunters these days or class themselves as hunters, they class themselves as ethical hunters and they have an eco-conscience uh, when it comes to protecting not only what they're doing, Doing out there in the mm. environment, uh, they've got they're in tune with the environment, but also are making sure that the species that they do hunt is there for the future, uh, so mm. that their sport has a um, has a legacy. Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah, very true, very very true. Absolutely, yeah. I want you know I want my kids to be able to to go out there and see these animals and enjoy them as as I do. And yes, hunting is part of what we enjoy, but we get to spend time with them in, in nature and enjoying it. So I want them to be able to yep. do that too. And my grandkids. You know, and, and something special, and I think this is why I think uh, so many people are, are getting into uh, hiking and bushwalking these days. And that's sort of come off the back of COVID when, you know, a lot of the major things in the cities were sort of shut down, people looking for new things to do on the weekends. But, you know, hunters have enjoyed the outdoors for such a long time where something special happens you become in tune when you start listening you start feeling the environment you start smelling the bush uh you know you you really get in tune with it and you need to be that if you're if you're a good hunter Uh, but also i I see that um there's a lot of uh, psychological benefits to that and social benefits no most definitely i actually i regard you know the way i describe it is that you actually become a participant Mm. If you, you know, you can either be an observer and, and, it's, and it's all very glorious and pretty to go to a, to a lookout and look over a, an escarpment or something like that. But when you hunt, you're actually a participant in that environment. Then all of a sudden, you, you know, your role changes. That's correct. And you also realize how, um, uh, you know, yeah. how, say, how inefficient you are as a human compared to, <laughs> to, compared to other animals. You realize, oh, okay. You're about five out of 100 compared to some of those critters out there. <laughs> Yeah, that, that dumb deer has spotted me like three days ago. You know, knew I was leaving the home before. I, you know, it's heard me, it's smelt me, it's yeah, seen me. Exactly. It's figured out what it's all about, all before I even know what's going on. So yep. it it does. It, it's it's very humbling in that way as well. You know, so um, that's but it's yeah, it's about being a participant. And I, again, you know, fishing allows you to do that. You can you know you can go to the the water's edge and observe, or if you fish, you all of a sudden you you know your your whole role changes in that in that 
perspective. Well, talking mm. about changing roles, I'm going to ask yourself a question now, Mark. Maybe Ooh. even John o might be able to uh, to uh, John might be able to uh, chime in here. One of the things I think uh, personally, uh, coming from a hunting and fishing background, that I think has damaged both sports is the ease of finding locations through GPS. Now, when I grew up hunting, you needed to go out with one of the older guys that would show you where to go, show you where the dams are, show you where the water holes are, or in fishing, show you where the fishing spots are, and you'd have to figure out how to find them on a map, and you know you'd have to find or a chart, and you'd have to negate yourself uh, backwards and forwards from that area. Now. Um, everyone seems to be able to just drop a pin on Google Maps and go to wherever they think would be a good hunting spot. And I, I think that really has taken an element away from the sport, which um, uh, which I which I really enjoy, but also we, I think protected the sport as well. Mm. I suppose expanding mm. it, you know, all technology does kind of make things a little bit easier, you know, and we get into this conversation. Mm all the time, you know, and you could probably start with, you know, is a scope rifle easier to shoot, shoot than an open sight rifle, yes. you know, and then you get then you get into the arm wrestle with the bow hunters and then the bow hunters get into arm wrestles with the traditional <laughs> bow hunters who get then an arm wrestle yeah, with cool. the, you know, stick bow hunters and then they get the arm wrestle with the <laughs> slingshot. So you get that whole range of technology and then you get into thermals and all that yep. stuff. Specifically about GPS and e-scouting, one of the real challenges about public land hunting, mm. um, and this is, uh, you know, what, 14 years of public land hunting, there is no one there to tell you what to do. Yes, that's right. Okay, there is no mm. one, there is no cocky who owns a place, there's no friendly forestry guy who will say the deer are down here. You are completely on your own unless, you know, you go with someone who knows, you know, the space. Yep. So one of the great joys of public land hunting is literally you know here is your acreage That's go right. for it and find what you can and so mm. in that instance um e-scouting only gives you a you know an idea of where to go mm. it, it it helps you kind of say kind of like if you were looking at a, a you know you were standing on the beach and you're looking at the beach and you went that wave action tells me there's a gutter there, mm. so I'm going to cast there rather than just cast out into the open. Yeah. So, um, with uh, and, in, and in New South Wales, the GPS is is far more about um, making sure you get out yeah. <laughs> than it is about making sure you come you go out. Mm. You know, you 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 go into the forest. It's about making sure you can come back out of the forest again. Yeah. So you're using the GPS much more as a um as as a, a, a navigational device rather than a yeah. uh, than a game location device yeah. um i mean private land's different because you know you have different different mm. structure and things like that and you can well, i hunt private land a lot here in queensland and you know the first thing i do is i talk to the landowner and you'll go yeah i've seen those bastards up on the hill yeah. up there you know and all, all of a sudden okay i know where to go and you can put trail cams out mm. um even though trail cams don't tell you where they are they tell you where they've been unless you've got some way of seeing it in mm. live action so it is it look that's one of the great questions about technology and how you use technology and i mean like thermal hunting's are, are probably the most um uh current one yep. you know um, i don't know if you've ever used thermal I, I haven't had an opportunity but i've seen some lovely uh thermal videos and yeah. I, I think they're just and brilliant <laughs> yeah. uh, but the thing with mm. I'd um I'd chuck another spin on that altogether. Um, I know where you're going with that, and I and I think it's a super fair question. But 
in Queensland, because we have limited mm. accesses to, to locations to hunt, even if you join a club, yep. that cagey old bugger who's been hunting and he's had access his entire life is still not going to tell you where to go. <laughs> and he may not invite you onto that piece of land either. So those that are new to the sport or the pastime or the hobby or mm. whatever you want to call hunting, um, are being able, they're being enabled by technology to go out and get into the yep. sport because they can now see where to go and have a look at and do some research and feel more confident. Mm. Those that came to clubs before, unless they were handheld into the bush, they probably didn't really make a start. Now, if I think about the the, the growth in deer population, pig population, game population in general over the years, like if I think about, you know, Samba, you know, back in the whenever it was, when they were, you know, they, they weren't as abundant as they are now, fallow, very similar, reds as well. So those populations have grown yep. as well. So now we're combating population growth potentially with technology. But I think the one thing that we need as hunters is more hunters. We need more people competing for the game so we've got more voice and more ability to change. And I think technology enables new people to get into I the think sport. With, with, off the back of that technology and enabling more people to get turned into the sport, which I completely um, agree with being a great thing, um, needs, I think, then come with, and this is what's being done in New South Wales, I understand, with um, hunting on on uh, state land, is the courses that come with that, the, uh, the licenses mm. that come with that. And while we are enabling people right now to go and hunt uh, through technology in Queensland, we don't, we're missing that in Queensland when it comes to the legislation. Oh, yeah. So that's what I wanted to circle around to. Oh, yeah. Part mm -hmm. of um, the problem that we do have, I think, with enabling people with technology is uh, those new people to the sport or the recreation, whatever you want to call it, um, aren't being taught some of the, um, I guess, the code of ethics uh, and the ethical side of things that come with that. And I think that is mm -hmm. a place that I think government needs to start playing. Uh, they need to acknowledge that people are getting into these areas, whether you like it or not. Um, because of the technology, but and because of that, you have a uh, a responsibility to mitigate some of those risks that come with that by licensing and um, and also um, making sure people are accredited to do so. Mm, very true. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I um sorry. Um, speaking of the the accreditation piece, I mm. um I spent twelve years living in the UK. Um, I moved from South Africa to the UK, and and whilst not compulsory, mm. they offer a education program called yeah. called the deer stalking yep. certificate so there they call it stalking not hunting um and there's different levels so level one is basically it's all about um the legal aspect all about the deer species how to treat the animal you know once it's been yeah. you know breaking down the carcass from a um being able to introduce that into the into the um into the food chain we had to do a species identification test a sex identification test we had to do a shooting test all of this and at the end of it you got a certificate and it got to the point where a lot of the properties you were hunting on yeah. stipulated you had to have that certificate yeah. so there's a you know an option for for state government to say right well if we want to allow this only level one or level two hunters are allowed on yeah. and you have to pass the certification yeah. so that's a way to making sure that people are adequately trained and, and that, educated that's before they're allowed risking the situation yeah there's also yeah, a, a, a really big circle in here mm. too which is and you know and nick you know you you spoke about your you know how you came into to be to be involved for great many people we talk to and look to be honest me being one of them there isn't a traditional role model that you can follow so we are talking a lot 
to guys who go, I would love to go hunting, but other than what I've seen on, you know, a video game or on TV, I've got no experience of that. And I have no one in my wider family who I can, you know, I don't have that uncle who's a bit kooky and does a lot of hunting or, you know, lives in his boat. I don't have, people don't have that. And so these kind of things that you're talking Mm. about, you know, programs and all that stuff are also really, I think, really important to actually start to build that culture. I agree. Because if you don't, you know, you Mm. know, there is, if we, if we kind of look at New South Wales and I suppose even more, more Victoria and you look at Queensland hunters and not to disparage anyone, but because hunting is kind of a cultural activity in there, there, there is a, there's a different kind of thought process around Mm. hunting. Yeah, there's still poachers down there and there's still people breaking the breaking law, but people tend to look at hunting as a, a cultural activity, whereas a lot of people we talk to, they're, they're just kind of dying to get going, you know. They, 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 you know. And if you kind of look at it from a psychological point of view, you know, it has Maslow's hierarchy of needs. At the bottom is, is you know, food, shelter, water. Our hunters are the... You're in there in the food, shelter, water section. You know, we just want to get going. We just want to get out. And I think psychologically um, too, I think we should be allowed to get out there and do these sorts of recreational mm. activities. You know, um, it's part of our psyche. We're, we're a hunting, gathering um, group of uh, uh, species that have forever and a day survived on this. And, you know, we've only really changed the way that we've operated um, as humans over the last, say, 50 years. You know, 50 years ago, unless you lived in a major city, Mm. most people owned a rifle in Australia and most people had shot something, whether it was for uh, feral pest management or to to simply eat. And that was the so when I was brought up, uh, although, you know, when we were a little bit younger, you you run around for daisy shooting toads and all those sorts of things. But as we, after I was taken hunting hunting for the first time by my dad and and his mates, uh, from now on, son, you only shoot something to eat it or to, as, as pest management. Now are the two things. You better want to eat that yeah. or it better be a bloody pest. Mm. And I think right. that's the difference. Mm. Um, when you learn those sorts of things, your whole mindset changes. So um, then, like you were saying before, Ian, you, you start learning, well, how do I make sure that I'm preserving this animal when I'm taking it? How am I making sure that the meat's going to be fine for when I clean it? How am I going to make sure that um, you know this trophy is going to be in a... a, a condition so that the taxidermist can do something with it all these things uh and i think psychologically so many people in the cities these days have missed out on that have missed this step and therefore i think yeah. uh have started to uh lose a little bit of our uh, i guess identity yeah look yeah. it's incredibly you know you're right on there about that like when i used to well, i remember uh, on Saturday mornings going out to Belmont and I used to talk to an, an older bloke out there. And he, when he found out I worked for the railways, he said, he told me the story that when he was a kid, he used to catch the train with the shot, with the yeah. single barrel 12 gauge shotgun out to um, the last station down there. At, um, I think it's Rosewood down there, get off the train and just walk up the old corridor. Cause that's where the train yeah. terminated walk up the old corridor and shoot yep. rabbits on that Fully corridor for back. food and then walk back to the station and <laughs> and the trains would marshal there. And then and after a while, the guards got to know him and they used to literally invite him to sit in the guard box with them on the train back to Brisbane because he lived at Wilston. Yeah. And they'd give him, you know, they'd feed mm. him you know, hot tea and cold biscuits if he gave him a rabbit or two type thing. And that was, you know, <laughs> not... 
You know, that was like in the 50s. Yep. You know, it's not like, ago. you know, ye oldie times. This was, you know, just before electrification of that yeah. line. So, you know. Now if it doesn't come vacuum sealed, no one knows <laughs> Yeah, no you'd, one knows you'd be struggling to find a 50-year-old in Brisbane <laughs> or Sydney right now that could skin a rabbit on, while hanging it off the, um, the back fence of a str- or a tree. Uh, hmm. yeah. 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 No, you're right. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I think the other thing um, while we're on this topic that technology – sadly is enabling and, and that is the you know the um oh what's the term they use it the now generation activity where you know i can i can be licensed and approved to go and hunt immediately without any of that additional support mm-hmm. and i think having um, courses that people can work through gets them into clubs and gets them mentorship and gets them the support mm-hmm. that they need to be able to go and do it safely and you're right it would mitigate a lot of that Concern mm. for risk, I think, because um, now well, that's where your men- mental hunting comes in. It, it's e- it's easy to go and grab a GPS or do some e scouting and put a pin on somewhere, but unfortunately, so a lot mm-hmm. of these new hunters, that's still not enough. They actually want the GPS mm-hmm. and they want your pin location. That's right. You've been there before, so you can verify right. this deer. Mm. They want to. It's not even going and looking for it mm. themselves. So, so they want to. They want to e tag yeah. on the deer so they can drag it to it. <laughs> well, I guess uh, while we're talking about technology and I guess that that new generation of hunter. One thing that I've actually spoken about um, publicly and, you know, I may have ruffled a few feathers on this, but I said, you know, when I was brought up hunting, it was um, you didn't tell anyone where you were going. You didn't tell anyone where you'd been and you hadn't been anywhere all weekend. And then you got invited on the next and you got invited on the next hunt. Um, we've now got a generation that wants to video and film every single thing that they do. And uh, they then feel like they need to put that up on social media. Um when it comes back to this ethical hunting and also um, there's a group of people out there and we've got to be um, open to this. There's a group of people out there that don't want us doing the things that we do out there because they either um, ideologically don't agree with it or uh, they don't understand it. Either way, um, they don't want us out there. So therefore, I think every hunter does have a responsibility when they, you know, and I'm not against hunting videos and I'm not against videos being up on YouTube, but we need to be very mindful of what we put up to make sure that it is ethical and it is legal. Mm. Yep. Most definitely. You know, and yeah, absolutely. 100% agree. And uh, Aldo yeah. Leopold uh, said that. He said, you know, act, you should hunt, because when he was talking about ethics, he said, you should hunt like someone's yep. actually watching. Absolutely. So don't hunt like, oh, I can do this because no one's watching. No, you should be thinking everyone's mm. watching. So what am I yep. going to do? And I always found that to be a really powerful way to describe that. So if you make a video, and yes. that's what we do, look, we make videos. We're going to make a video that someone's going to look at. So we've got to think about everything around that. And we've had many a discussion about, you know, mm-hmm. okay, some, how might someone interpret yeah. this video, you know? So it's about, and I actually think mm-hmm. that's a really, it's actually, obviously, the, you know, Ian referred to the, you know, the now generation. And we've had, unfortunately, people poach simply so they could have mm-hmm. the best head photo on, you know, on Facebook or Instagram. Mm-hmm. And there's actually, real real life cases where that's happened um but you know being able to look at that video critically and go okay what message am i actually portraying here am i portraying a positive message now some people are never going to see it as a positive message and you know um, okay sure um but um some people from new south Wales will never play rugby league but we have to deal with that 
Um, <laughs> After the last Origin, gentlemen, I don't think they should play rugby league. We, we, we have to accept these. Things. We have to accept these things. But um, but you know, so yeah, so presenting that image is a still image. Your your language, whatever it is, like people are going to actually mm. look at it and actually think about it is actually a really good um you know it's kind of a it's a really good um filter to run run no, you're right it. mark and uh, mm. you know whether it's youtube whether it's other um, platforms whether it's social mm. media like instagram or facebook or or even tiktok uh, how you project yourself is completely up to you and that's exactly how the world's going yep. to perceive you so mm-hmm. um you can choose exactly what you put up. You don't have to put everything up. So if you want to uh, make sure that people do believe and understand what you're doing is ethical, then make sure you're putting ethical things up. If you want to carry on like a Yahoo and you know, be um, prosecuted as such in the public eye, um, then, yeah, continue to do that stuff. But I think we're all trying, if we want to um, do yeah. the right thing, and I think everyone in this room is, um, we need to project uh, a positive and an ethical image for what we all do. Mm. Yeah, mm. you know, mm. personally, I, I, to me, it's about and it's, it is a creation activity because it doesn't exist. But creating a culture yep. of hunting, and you know, and, and 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 in in the in the positive sense of what a culture is. So, if we look at you know uh, subcultures within our society that are positive, it's because we see mm. them as positive. You know, you know, we 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 don't we might not see what happens in the background, but what we physically see or interact with is positive, and that's what we need to do. Uh, that's what we need to be aware of as hunters, you know. And, and if you want to, as you said, if you want to post stuff on your man a, a goose, well, you know, gooses usually end up in the pot. <laughs> so that, that that's a good way to you know think about it. if you if you want to actually. <laughs> present something positive then think about it that way I'll t- again totally well, talking about uh pots mark has everyone got a favorite recipe nope. for whatever they're um they're game hunting out there <laughs> Ian, what do you like to cook oh, surely, for me, I like, surely I like, I like you've heard of my world famous i look forward to uh, <laughs> trying this at some stage there's nothing like world a good famous. goat curry Oh, it's unbelievable! It's great. It's the it's the thing that made me um, decide that deer weren't the only species to hunt. I uh, tried a goat curry, yeah, and like, yep. these are actually worthy. And now I treat them. Just no, as, goat just meat's as beautiful. Uh, the Greeks do a lot of um oh. around the region here. Do a lot of right. um, beautiful mm-hmm. roasts, but also um, goat on the spit uh, style um, meals. Yeah, just goat meat's lovely if prepared and and, and looked after well. Mm. Yeah, the other one that um, we do a lot, and I forget what the term is, where you slice the meat. Like a shishimi almost? Um, Jerky. Yeah, like that, and then we roll it in a piece of blue cheese, just pan sear it, or barbecue sear it, and that just, that is the best. Oh, lovely. Well, our friend Andrew Day, who's been on this podcast, calls them (laughs) vegan converters, and um, (laughs) he's known to do just that. Oh, that sounds beautiful. How about yourself, Mark? I oh, look uh, to be honest uh, this is my weak point I'm I'm far I'm I'm way up at the production <laughs> end the, you know the I'm the, I'm the I'm the hunter and the gatherer when it when I get here it starts to slow down so generally uh um I do things like uh, minces and various things like that so I've got a good mincer and we we've got a mince uh, uh formula that we use the boys um we have a thing called dad's best burgers which are venison burgers. Um, that's a, a, a big treat around here. 
And so there's, you know, there's 20 odd kilos of venison in the freezer at the moment, and usually a yep. couple of fish in there as well. But uh, to be honest, I, I, I feel that I'm a bit lacking in the, in the cooking department. So I, I, I don't want to take any spotlight. Well, well, John, John has probably got a, curry, a great recipe curry. there he'd like to share. <laughs> Oh yeah, for me, I'll go back to my heritage oh, and make biltong. That's that's my favourite. What's that so, other um, weird sausage that you keep bringing up? <laughs> oh, yeah. poor fighter. That's the one. Can explain that? Have again? you heard of the poor fighter? So, so the poor fighter is so yeah. it's a puff adder, which is a type of snake in South Africa, obviously. But there's a dish mm-hmm. that the um, that's made in South Africa, which is the heart, liver, and kidneys finely chopped up with a bit of onions and spices, and then you stuff it into the, um, the it's called the fet datum, which is the colon or the, mm. the, 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 the large intestine. And then you'd stuff it in that and then you cook it on the, on the open grill and yeah, then you yeah. it on the fire. It's an acquired that's the, taste. Is that the round one? Um, yeah, yeah. No, that's burravos. That's the one you're thinking yeah. of as burravos, which is the, so, which is a yeah. very large sausage. But yeah, the, the, the poor fighter we're going to mm. have to do one day. Yeah, yeah, they do. But uh, for me, biltong, that's my favorite to make. The kids love it. The dogs love it. Everyone loves it. Well, um, coming yeah, from an Italian favorite, background so. and an Italian heritage, it's, and yourself? it was very funny. Um, a lot of the Italians that settled in the area that I grew up in, they came, came out after World War One or Two, And you got to remember, World War Two in Italy, was meat was scarce. You know, a lot of the Italian dishes didn't even have meat. They were very vegetarian-style mm. dishes. So when they got to Australia... You know, there was everything from bandicoot to black ducks to shoot and uh, everything in between, right? So meat was plentiful and um, every Italian family in the um, the Herbert district or the Hinchinbrook electorate would have a black duck spaghetti recipe, which they all believe is their very best, of course. Uh-huh. Uh, but every family's got their own recipe and that's something that um, we've, we've mastered. And, you know, it'll take you nearly two days to cook a good black duck spaghetti and let everything fall off the bone and then uh, make the handmade pasta and roll it and, uh, and, and put it through the machine yourself and a bit of palms and cheese, gentlemen, and... God, I'm looking forward to getting up to <laughs> yeah, the I reckon we're going to have it. goat, goat curry and uh, <laughs> oh, 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 spaghetti yeah, when you get here. Well, we'll, 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 bring, we'll bring the curry because I, I, I want to oh. get some finger marks. We'll so take you to the end of the, uh, the Lucinda Sugar Jetty next time you're up here to catch those finger marks. It's the longest uh, jetty mm. in the southern hemisphere. It's absolutely massive, uh, 5.8 kilometres. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's good. Hey, uh, quick question for you then. Um, do you have any major objectives that you want to um, want to chase in your hunting world? Like have you got a major passion that sometime in your life you've got to go and track down that elk or that moose? <laughs> you know, I, um, now that I'm in the, the hot seat to have legislative um, influence and reform here in the state of Queensland, at some stage I would love to get to a point where I can use my own 44 Magnum uh, which is a Category H here in Queensland, to go and shoot one of those crocodiles out there. If, we, if I can get to that point, <laughs> I'd be That's bloody happy with that. I know we're probably a far cry from that now, right just, now, gentlemen, <laughs> but everyone's got to have a dream, right? Now, just remember, we'll, we will be yeah. the camera crew on that one, so you need to make sure you do that properly because <laughs> no, we will be. I think a lot out. of things That's have it. got to change legislatively to get ourselves mm. to that point. But um, you know, like I, I said, everyone's so. got to have a goal and everyone's got to have a dream, right? Mm. That's it. Why not? That's, That's right. perfect. Mm. So, so then, not that we want to go too far back into the the R license and why we don't have it thing, but what, where, where do you see we are? Where are the what, what are the chances? And and if there's a message to get out to listeners, what do they need to be doing, or what should we be doing to try and promote mm. or push or raise a voice? You know, something's got to change at some point. Someone, 
with expert knowledge like yourself. One thing that I've learned over the last five years of being in uh, state politics is uh, the state government and and doesn't matter who's which party's in power. Every party that's in power at the time um, has really one objective, and that is staying in power. Uh, every opposition party uh, wants to be in power. And the only way you uh, control the parliament is having the numbers, and that's winning enough seats across Queensland or what, whichever state you're talking about uh, to hold government. So the, the only way they win seats is by having enough people vote for them. So the larger we can grow our organisations um, or, or, um, or, or associations when it comes to recreational hunting, uh, the bigger and larger voice and more influence we have on those members of parliament. So I encourage people, whenever a petition does come up, and we have run a state forest hunting petition in the past, which we had only 20,000 people sign. Uh, we also had the, the, mm. the deer hunting petition that's recently run. That's getting some good numbers at the moment as well. Um, get online and make sure you're, you're actually mm -hmm. signing those petitions, those e-petitions, um, because they show the state government of the day that there actually is this large block of voters out there that are willing to shift their vote on this type of policy. You can also do something very practical. Meet with your local members of parliament. Go down there and they're, they're supposed to be your voice in Parliament. Ask, and even some cases, if they're a bit stubborn, demand to have a meeting with them. Sit down and actually put across your views to your Member of Parliament because if they're doing their job right, they should be taking either your voice into Parliament or your, um, your objectives or views into their party room for discussion. Look, that, about mm. the e-petition, because, you know, Thank you. and I, I signed both, one of the... Um, you know, one of them, yeah, was 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 the yeah, first one. It was the massive. Biggest one. It was the biggest one. Yep. It was the biggest yep, one the ever. Was the big one. Wasn't it? It was, yeah. it was huge. I one of the you know, not a criticism, but comment is 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 how effective are they? And I think you, you yeah, know, it's a good question. Is, do do mm. they hear yeah. those? Obviously, just because someone hears it doesn't mean they. No, um, no, no. They that's accept true. It. That's very true. <laughs> it's called. You know, we we all we all experience a situation where you say something and it gets completely ignored. But um, and, if... and to, to to follow that, Mark, as well, um, Nick, before you answer it, my understanding is that if the petition's over a certain size, then it has to be tabled for discussion or at least tabled. But and, and to Mark's point, does that mean that they go, yes, we recognise that you've got this petition; it's over there in the corner, and we're not looking at. You know, is there? Because that is the, the the general feeling, I think, of people that I talk to is yeah. oh, just another one of those that they don't read. What's the point? Mm. Um, so that's a yeah. That's a so I, I'd probably answer that mm. in two parts. So years ago, if a petition actually reached ten thousand, it had it triggered a debate in Parliament. That no longer is the case, unfortunately. The standing orders changed um, last term, and the state government changed okay. that. So it doesn't actually do, uh, trigger a debate in Parliament anymore. But what every petition, e-petition does warrant is, after being tabled, uh, a response directly from the minister whose portfolio it lands in, right? So every petition will get an answer from the government. Now, we can do a number of things here. So people might say, all right, so what are these petitions like? Do, do they actually listen to them? Well, sometimes they do, especially in marginal seats, because they can actually pull these petitions apart and actually see how many people have voted for this in certain oh, yeah. seats across Queensland are going off your addresses, mm. right? You start pulling that apart and you look at marginal seats, for example, and you might have the Labor Party or the opposition that might be going, oh, hang on a sec, we really want to 
win the seat where there's only 300 or 200 votes in. So we really, really need to see, see where we can start picking up these votes uh, for changing our policy and, and, um, and, our, le- and our regulations and legislation. Uh, and the, the only other option really is just sitting silent on this stuff and expecting something to happen. Good luck if you think that's the solution. Mm. Uh, so at every opportunity, yeah. mm. whether it's through making your voice heard um, through YouTube conversations like this, direct conversations with members of parliament, having lobby groups actually sit down with members of parliament and ministers, having members of parliament that aren't in government working with you like I am right now to try and get them a message in Queensland parliament. Um, They're all important. They're all important levers to pull. And it's funny, you know, when things do change, uh, you know, I love the saying that, you know, success has many fathers and uh, failure has none. Um, unfortunately, as soon as, soon as something gets yeah. over the line, everybody did it right. <laughs> Everyone did it. Yeah. Um, I never use the word yeah. I in any of the yeah. words I do. I always yeah. use the word we uh, because it is a collective. It really is. And to be fair, you don't know what the straw that broke the camel's back to open the floodgates on legislative change comes from. That's right. Well, I mean, that's a, that saying, you know, it takes mm. 10 years to be an overnight sensation. <laughs> exactly, so, you know. exactly. That's right. It <laughs> does sound to me, though, that there's some smarter activity that can be done around petitions. Oh, I'll start that again. It sounds like there's some smarter things that we can do around the petitions in understanding where those mm. soft targets are, understanding where the soft points are for the government of the day, and making sure that we get the response out of those marginal seat yes. areas. Yep. that we need because if it's just a, a, a you know a put it out online and hope then we're not doing the best we can and that's a very good way to mm. well one thing that it. i made sure we did with that um that state foresty mm. petition was make sure making sure that we you know you know you don't just raise the petition hopefully it does its own thing and it'll just go through facebook and, and then create its own sort of uh i guess um heartbeat and run on its own steam you really need to be specific on what uh, the petition wording is, and then you need to be also okay. uh, able to create um, mm. and draw out a narrative off the back of that, but also then um, a, a full campaign needs to be mm. had. So, you know, making sure that every hunting organisation or hunting association or group uh, is, is willing to push that as well, but also getting that, like you said, in the media into those marginal seats so people in those areas do, do sign them. That, and that was yeah. the next question I was going to ask you about petitions. Should they be, you know, open or or more specific? So you think the more, you know, the more specific the ask, the, exactly. The, the so the you know, any question. So a petition is essentially a question you're asking a minister on behalf of yeah. you know, whether it's two hundred or two hundred thousand petitioners. It's a question you're asking a certain minister. So you want to kind of corner that person um, into being very direct mm. and not so so over uh, overlaying or um, broad broad casting when it comes to answering that question. So yeah. you're really cornering them and wedging them. Yep. Mm. Yep. Understand what you mean. Just like um you know yeah, so rather than saying – rather than – and because often you see that in a petition, it's kind of wide-ranging and it, it's a, this person's thought process and there's lots of points where they yep. can say no, 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 no. You actually want to say, you know, do this, exactly. yes, exactly. no type thing. Or, or, you know, even asking a okay. question. So say we – one of the um, questions you could ask, for example, is, uh, you know, off the back of the success of New South Wales and Victoria's um, – 
you know, hunting uh, programs and, and recreational hunting activities, uh, would the Queensland Government adopt a similar process? Uh, and if not, why? You know, asking a very specific question like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Straight line question. Sounds very good. Mm. Um, I thought for, from a we should probably introduce the fact that you're a, not only a member of parliament, you're a, that you represent CAP yeah. a, and yep. talk a little bit about um, CAP. So um, I know that you, you, you know, there's you and is it Robbie Catter and Canoof. The, Shane Canoof yep. or Canoof? Canoof. It's certainly is. It's this railway man. Rail well, um, yeah. Yeah, I think I... I think him and I were there at the there same you go. time. Back in the day when you were knocking yeah. in the spikes by so hand. There's... Nah, mate, I was never knocked in spikes. <laughs> nah. I was no, in the headshot. I, I reckon uh, Shane would have been where there was smoke <laughs> as well. Uh, I always give him a bit of stick about that. But uh, Shane, Shane actually was a, um, a great footballer back in the day. Um, played in the Foley Shield and all those sorts of things in Queensland, which is sort of the higher sort of a, um, yeah, league sort of um, ranks back in the day. One thing that um, – so people always ask me, you know, you're part of Cutter's Australian Party. How did this sort of um, eventuate? How did you get to this point? And, you know, I wasn't even looking to get into politics. Uh, I was pretty happy. My background, I'm a mining um, and construction worker. I'm a fitter boiler maker by trade. I, I'm actually a really good fitter that probably shouldn't weld. I shouldn't ever say I'm a dual trader. Um, but my background was mining and construction, took me all over the northwest mineral province in Queensland here and over to Western Australia, into the Pilbara region. I ended up coming back um, probably about seven years ago now and decided that I was going to start my own small business where I was running jet ski tours out of the Breakwater Marina here in Townsville, which is probably one of the, the best jobs in the world. Probably took about a, a two-third pay cut, but I was yeah going from kicking red dirt and rocks every day to and eating flies to, you know, watching dolphins jumping out of the water and people running around on um, jet skis in their um, board shorts and bikinis. Uh, out of the blue, I got a phone call from the Honourable Bob Catter. Now, anyone that's ever met Bob before, it's um, yeah, a very flamboyant character. It's a, um, a character that you've, uh, yeah, large in life. And he actually rang me out of the blue and said, Nick, we really like what you're doing. We like your background. We think you could be the right suit for uh, running for a seat of parliament for us. Are you interested? And I met Bob in person um, after that um, to discuss the option and I said, probably not, Bob. I'm, I'm pretty happy doing what I'm doing at the moment. Um, business is starting to turn a dollar as most, most do after the first couple of years and um, left it at that. Well, two days later, I met uh, Robbie Cattery's son and probably one of the most charming bastards you'll ever meet. And when I say charming, just a nice bloke, you know. Um, it, it's sickening how many people just like Robbie Catter. Uh, I do too, and I, I sort of say, mate, if I get to work with you on, an, on a daily basis, um, more than happy to put my hand up. And one of the reasons I went with Cat, not only because they asked me, but after I went through, and you now a lot of parties these days, in my view, don't really stand for much. You know, they sort of just go with public opinion. Uh, I think that's the demise of um, the, the Liberal and National Party right now. The Labor Party does a very similar thing. Instead of standing with their original core values and principles, they sort of just go with what the public wants. And I didn't want to go with a party like that. I went with a party that has, you know, a, a core values and principles that we stick with every day. And Instead of, you know, just picking people, you know, that are popular to run for that party, they actually pick people that are of the same opinion as them. Um, you know, it's, I, I haven't had to learn to love hunting. Um, and, and I, to be part of the Cat's Australian party, they pick someone that did love hunting. Uh, and people often ask us, you know, where, 
we are, we're fearless when we actually advocate for the firearms industry and the, um, the safe ownership of and the licensed firearm owners' rights in Queensland and Australia because we actually truly believe in it. Um, we don't go out as gun for hire when we are looking for people to back our party. Uh, we believe in this. We're going to do this anyway. And if you want to back us, we invite you to come along with us. And that's what I really like about them. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it's interesting, you know, the way Queensland Parliament structure, but you guys are, whilst you're not a micro party, you're not a major, you are, there is, yeah. you've got gravity around you. So, I mean, what's that yeah, like? Yeah, it's interesting in because. And this is just, this is, yeah. this is political Mark who's far more interested in this stuff <laughs> than he should be. So, what's that actually like with you guys? You know, you, you know, you, you, you obviously, there's a connection directly to Bob Catter, but, you know, by family and by name, but you, right. there's actually three of you. So you must create some level well, of gravity around that's right. That. So, and one thing, so we sit on the crossbench in the Queensland Parliament and the interesting part about being on the crossbench is mm. um, you're not in government, but you're not in um, opposition either. So you're on the crossbench. Mm. So one thing that we've done with that position is we've tried to create a very credible space for us to operate in. And we don't just bash government when they're every day of the week. We bash them when they're doing the wrong thing. And we pat them when they're doing the good thing, right? Um, and that's where I think we've actually started building a lot of really uh, good credibility, not only in our seats, but in the Queensland Parliament as well. Um, when we say that government's not doing a good job, they usually aren't. We're not just saying it because we're not part of that party. Now, in 2015, uh, the state uh, actually went into a hung parliament uh, where Robbie Catter and Shane Knuth actually held the balance of power for, for some time with other crossbench members. Now, that gave them a huge bargaining chip um, and helped them deliver certain things for Queensland and not only regional Queensland but for their own electorates. Now, um, the parliament we're in at the moment isn't tight, but uh, both sides value us as a long-term strategy because I think at some stage, statistically, we're going to be in a hung parliament again. And I think the, uh, the, the LNP recognise that, but so does the government and the Labor Party at the moment. So um, we do get access um, to both sides and, and I, I, I guess, respect from both. Because, I mean, you, you technically are the... the and we're the... Uh, I'd the say we're party, the... Aren't you? You got more. Yeah. You got more than the Greens, yeah. and you got more than One Nation. And there's there's an in, there's yeah there's there's one, there's one independent at the moment, two Greens, and uh, the One Nation gentleman Stephen Andrews. Now, that's right. So you're actually the third party, as it were, in terms and of and not only that in North numbers. Queensland, we're the opposition. Um, if you want to go up the numbers, both. So. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. Break yeah, it down like right. that. One, so two, one, yeah, two, when when two. we when we talk in especially North Queensland, people's ears prick up, uh, and it's a growing brand. Um, we take a common sense approach in a lot of things. Uh, we've actually worked really hard on that over the last three years to make sure that we are um, showing people that we are not only what we may have been in the past a protest sort of vote, but actually a, a safe part, place to park your vote in the future. So it's it's really quite interesting mm. how that's yep. developed over time, and to see that develop. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, for uh, one of the challenges, if you don't live in an area where you can, you know, you, you have a clear vote in, mm. in terms of for your for your lifestyle, yeah. which is me. I live in I'm I'm in you know, I'm in Greenland, as it were. Um, uh, 
how what's you know how how do you how do as a as someone who likes fishing yeah. or hunting or four wheel driving and you know how do you how do you have well, how do you how do you have how do you, how do you exercise something? your democratic right and make yeah how do you do that if you if you if at the voting booth you yeah. know you don't have that option you know the option's not there from a voting point of view so how might you do something you know you know more generally or how do you how do you, you know, work one around thing that I do ask people option? to do and you know if you know, I'm not saying that people that are watching this YouTube video should rush out and support the KAP or Cutters Australian Party or, or even join the party, but I do ask people to go out and have a good look at all the other parties and what they're doing, um, including us. And if you find a party that does suit your lifestyle and does suit the things that you're interested in, start supporting them. Um, be, become a financial member. Become a member of the party. Start advocating in your area for the work that they do you may not and we do think we're a small smaller party with a smaller budget so we do have to be quite strategic on what we what and where we spend our money on so during election campaigns um, we have been quite strategic in the last two where we all actually run in seats in regional or north queensland mainly because we actually um, we, we need to build off our strengths. We would love to have a party at some stage that could run on the Gold Coast or in Brisbane somewhere. Uh, that is really part of the gold. Um, but at the same time, uh, we need to be strategic at this point. And just because you, you live in Brisbane and you may not be able to vote for us at the next state election, um, it doesn't mean you can't support us in other ways. And like I said, uh, joining the parties or um, that you're interested in or even um, you know, predicating that message that they, they are putting out there is all a helping hand. Mm. That's good, good advice because, I mean, that's it. That one of the things that, you mm. know, again, you, you talk to people that go, I just got no, I don't know who to vote for because every, every you know, um, election you'll get on Facebook, you know, yep. say double SAA or someone will say, here's our preferred voting list, you know, yeah. or they don't say that because they, mm. they can't say that, but yeah. they, they would kind of do this scan of the parties and, and a lot of yeah. people go, yeah, but I, I, I live in such and such and yeah. that's just not an option available to me, so what do I do? But as you say, just get involved, even at hmm. any level. And that's, it's about, that's what yeah, we're all about, get involved. A movement and a message and getting that out there. And the, one of the things I also have, I have soft political conversations all day as well as um, heavy ones, but I'll turn up to the pub and there'll be, you know, four or five young lads sitting around the bar together and I'll walk up and say, oh, here you going, lads? I'm Nick DeMetto. And they'll go, hey, Nick, we, we don't want to talk about politics. Well, that's fair enough. I don't want to talk about politics either. So what do you love? Oh, I love me pig hunting. Hmm. Love me shooting, I love me fishing. So, oh, yeah. I said, um, you know, the reason you're able to do all those things still is because someone made a political decision at some t stage to allow you to do so. You understand that, which then influenced regulation in, in legislation. They go, oh, really? And now all of a sudden they're interested. What do you mean? What, how, how does that work? And then that's how you, like I said, I ask people mm -hmm. to find out what their member of parliament or candidates in the area are actually genuinely interested in and, uh, and back those people. Sounds like a, a good bit of advice. I mean, there was that Brian Ball said that's something fun. very similar. Well, he said um, when we were talking to him, he said, you know, you, they, parliament either makes laws for people to do the right thing or they do make laws because people do the wrong thing. And so, you know, for hunting, we want laws that are about promoting right. good hunting rather than retrospective laws mm -hmm. that limit things because of a bad act, bad yeah. activity or a bad, yeah. bad outcome. We don't want to be limited. We actually want the laws to actually be 
a positive law and, and to promote it. So yeah, that's that's, that's yep. get yep. get involved at some level. Yeah. I think more and more people are becoming interested in change. We've noticed that I've noticed that over the last five, six, even 10 years that uh, people are really starting to think, and maybe that's because as I've got older, the people that I associate with and, 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 you know, talk to on a day to day basis are maturing and they, and they're starting to take more of an interest in it. Maybe it's an age thing, but uh, certainly, you know, you get a lot, a lot of club members coming through now and they're asking, you know, what they can do to improve things and how to go about it. And I've been super surprised at the, the, the change in well, the I think language one, around One politics. thing we can all learn from, Ian, um, having a look at the, the rise of the greens and the teals here, and they're, they're all built off environmental um, policies, these two parties. And um, what what the um, the greens did well uh in when they're building is it's it's an ideology it's a, it's a movement um, they're pushing a movement it doesn't matter like most people wouldn't even know the name of their candidate but they um they want to vote for someone that wears that badge that says they're going to look after the environment now um, they're not the only ones uh, that have environmental credentials mm. here and there are good people out there that are trying to do the things that mm. we do and I think um, we all have a responsibility of creating that, that that good movement and like I said then backing political parties that um, are happy to stand for that movement yeah and, and that's it but that that's their brand and what they've yep. got into and so that's where the point of influence is coming for them. I mean, in terms, from a personal mm. point of view, I, when we talk about environmental policy in the Greens, I, I, I no, don't no. generally associate no. good environmental policy in the Greens. I certainly, I, I certainly mm. associate environmental activism and environmental opinion, but I don't necessarily associate good policy. Um, but unfortunately, you know, getting back to that idea is that if you live in inner city Brisbane or inner city anywhere and your connection with the environment is what you see through TV or social media, then, then those kind of things make sense. You know, there's, there's often, uh, for instance, I saw that one of the, um, one of the, uh, I think it was Nambia or um, one of the foreign ministers was in the UK to argue against Mm. the ban on trophy hunting. And, you know, was saying like, guys, you know, once upon a time you used to tell us how to live. And that got called colonialism. Yeah. So now you're yeah. telling us how to live again. You know, it's kind of the same thing. You're, you're repeating yourself. You're not saying, well, maybe we know how to actually run our own show and we might not understand, yeah. you know, the differences between, and, and kind of getting back to that croc thing, you know, crocs might be okay at Australia Zoo, but if there's one in the back creek and you're worried about what's going to, you know, doing going down to your clothesline yep. or, or your pets or your kids, then it becomes a different kind of, crocodile all of a sudden you know and, uh, i'm sure i'm mm. sure if you're a, a landowner mm. in south africa and you know and you hear someone complaining about feral pigs and you've got a herd of elephants <laughs> going through there you probably go yeah i wish i had feral pigs because i've got 10 yeah. tons worth of feral pigs coming through every night yeah. yeah so yeah that that idea of that you know if you're on the ground and you've got involvement and understanding that that actually means something it's not it can't simply be a Definitely. An academic, yeah, you know, I love this, you know, this observation. Of Queensland, in particular, is too big for one set of rules, and you've got people that live in the southeast corner that create rules uh, for the whole of Queensland. Yeah. And not only are we mm. at different developmental stages throughout the state, 
Um, we're also at uh, different areas, uh, can have different problems, whether it's pest management or feral pest management, or in this case, crocodiles. You can't say, um, oh, this is how we're going to manage crocodiles um, from the inner city of Brisbane um, offices when they've never lived in an area where once you swam in the creeks and fished in the creeks um, mm. without a worry of a crocodile, now you've got, you wouldn't mm. go three foot in front of the water. It's, um, yeah. Those people just don't understand it. And yeah. um, unfortunately, they're making a lot of the rules mm. for us. Crazy, I did have mm. a conversation once with uh, a lady now was a minister in the, in the Labor government in Queensland. And she said, Nick, I just, this is very early in my political career. She said, no, I just don't understand North Queenslanders. What, what do they want? And I said, to be left alone. We know we don't have the, you know, the, the ballet every night playing in the middle of Beeler Wheeler or, you know, you don't have the, um, they call it up in the middle of the Daintree Rainforest, a new football stadium going up. But we want to go fishing where we want to go fishing. We want to be going hunting where we want to go hunting. We just want to be left alone. That's why we live here in regional Queensland and in different parts of the, uh, of, of the state. Yep. So oh, look, I think I think there's yeah. a great many people yep. in the southeast who are exactly the same opinion. You know that we yeah. just I, I mm. like I was you mm. know having a similar conversation, and it's like there's certain things I think make good citizens. So, for instance, if the person is in front of you and they're driving forty in the sixty zone, just chill out. You know yep. they might be lost, they might be doing all sorts of things. It might be bothering the hell out of you, but you know, chill out. Uh, no one's no going to die. die. Just. Yep. Slide back down, you know, and that's a good citizen. But also, it's also a good citizen to, for a, for a government to say, "Yeah, I trust you. You've done yep. the license. Here it is." You know that that mm. idea of that that yeah. that overreach that we feel, I think, and unfortunately, living in in a, in a high population area, overreach is is greater because you know it's there. But there's a local in my local area. There's a sustainability group, and I, you know. Kind of half, half being a bit of a mongrel went. Oh well, yeah. There's there's some deer up in the hill there. We can go get them and we can have a great feed. And you know what? That's not sustainability. Oh, actually, it is. But you know, it's just as sustainable as growing tomatoes on the local, yeah. you know, the local, you know, the the open common. But it's uh, you get that very different view about and, and also reminding them, of course, that, that that deer is also not a native animal. It's, a, it's actually a feral pest in in many instances. And, no. uh, and if we can harvest that yeah. resource and use it for uh, whether it's venison or or whatever, um, yeah. we should have that opportunity. Yeah, I mean, there's mm. a, a, a pest is yeah. a sunk loss. It, it just it just costs us, you know. Oh, if yeah. it's if it's turned into something that actually has a level of value, whatever that is, then all of a sudden it's not a sunk loss. You can actually do something with it. You know, weeds yeah. are the same. You know, a weed is a weed. But yeah. if it's something you go, oh, okay, we could do something with this. All of a sudden it, it changes. And to me, that's sustainability. Saying, okay, this thing, what can we do with it? Um, okay, we can we can mm. either spend a hell of a lot of money trying to get rid of it. And um, if you look at historically. There is no four-legged or two-legged vertebrate right. that we've got rid of once it comes to Australia. We got there isn't one. We haven't mm. we haven't got it. Well, speaking of that, I mean, so in so in South Africa, there was recently a, a court case where um, the, the South African government wanted to um, make trout. So trout's an introduced species in South Africa, but it is obviously in the waterways now, and it's been there for over a hundred years. And they wanted to eradicate them and say that it was a pest. Um, so it actually there was a court case that the mm. all the fishermen and and farmers and all that took the the, the national government to court 
um, to classify the animal, well, the fish, to say it's been here for over 100 years. It's as close to being native as it can be. And it's a, an asset and we're making money from it. Yeah. There's significant you know, investment yeah. made and people travel all over the world to come fish the trout here. Yeah. And the government lost that. It was actually, they actually said it's been here for over 100 yeah. years. Yeah, it I is get that. as close to being native as it, as it can be. Let's embrace it. Let's well, use it. There's, there's more deer and the deer have been here <laughs> for sure. longer than most of us Queenslanders. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So we should really be embracing yeah, yeah, yeah. it. They weren't kind of gifted to us by the boss. Yeah, well, well, and that was in the 18, that was in the eighteen hundred. So they've been here for a lot longer. So you know, the, one, one the, question the, I would, would like to ask um, in regards to um, anyone that's had, um, I guess, uh, an understand a, a deeper understanding of how New South Wales manages their um, their hunting. Now, one thing that we did come up against um, in Queensland when we were talking about hunting on in state forests was an unallocated state land was. A lot of our state forests and unallocated state land in Queensland are grazing pastures. It's been um, split up through grazing leases. Uh, how are they managing that in New South Wales so that uh, the landholder, or sorry, the lease uh, holders are, are working closely with those that have then access through the hunting scheme? So maybe mm. the way to explain it is in under the R licence. Um, do you do you have, do you have just before no, we go, yeah, what, what's your, have you, do you understand the license system and stuff? Yeah, don't want to, don't want to jump over that. But basically, once you have an R, you have the R license, so you yep. go through the process and you get the R license and you want to go hunting. So I want to hunt Nundle State Forest, for instance. I look at Nundle State Forest, and now Nundle State Forest is, is probably best described as a system mm. of state forests that are all bolted yep. together. So it's a fairly significant chunk of land. And in that, it will say, you yep. can hunt here but you can't hunt here. And the reason you generally can't hunt there is it's a lease or it's being used. So for, you know, for Nundle's a good example because forestry one, uh, Nundle state system is a active forestry system. Right. So if yeah. you're there, there's logging trucks going down the road. So it's the way they've worked it is that is that there's very various reasons why you might not be able to yep. access all of the forest. It might be leasehold. It might be actively being worked. It might be classed as a slightly different thing. So when you go to Pilliga, for instance, there's state forest bolts yep. and national parks, so you can't go there. And then there's this uh, old area that's like a conservation area right in the middle. You can't go there. And over here we've got uh, the Santos Wells working, so there's a, a ring around the world. So it's basically saying, yes, this mm. forest is kind of like a multi-use so if you were to look at grazing, obviously you, it, it's got to be size. But even if a farmer has grazing, uh, you know, the farmer's got 10,000 acres, as an example, as a, as a yep. grazing uh, a lease off the state government. Fair enough. But really, yes. is there cattle over that 10,000 acres? Is there cattle? Is that mm, whole mm. paddock covered in cattle? Yeah. Or is your farmer yeah. using that like most cattle Moving people are using yeah. it, you yeah. know, yeah. different times and using it for different situations? So, so and and that, that changes every three. Mm. So that and the farmer well doesn't go. Oh, I, I don't know every, but it's every three months. So every three months they and they do it quarterly. That's just the way they do it. Like so, if I go to hunt, uh, so I was hunting down mm. there um, a couple of months a month ago. That is only that that information is yep. only current until the, the end of that quarter and then yep. there'll be another map and it, it will look different. So for instance, with using the mm. pillar the pillar again, 
one time I was there, there was this weird corridor running through, which was yep. where the, the, they were surveying for the inland uh -huh. rail. And they just said, you can't hunt this here, okay? Because why? And mm. and when you went there, there was no one there. No. Because, you know, there's not guys surveying 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But they're just saying this is a corridor mm. where people will be working. So you just need to not go into that corridor. And that's, yeah, that's, the, yeah, the, the other thing you know, is, that's the answer. New, New South Wales um, are licensed yes. is predominantly in um, forestry land. Forestry lease, right? So it's mm -hmm. New South Wales Forestry Corp, um, and they have the they have the final say basically. So yes, the DPI run the, the hunting program, mm -hmm. but forestry have the parks, and if forestry got to send a work crew in, they update the DPI. The DPI then can call you on the spot and say your hunt is now cancelled. There is not enough um, hectares available for thirty yeah. hunters that we had yesterday. Today it's changed. Those that booked last are no longer you can't your permits cancelled and they call you. They then can update the maps yep. inside the quarterly um, rotation and just say, hey, that mm -hmm. that bit's out. During the raw this year, you know the, the prime hunting period up there, the raw and the mm -hmm. rut, um, they had very active forestry in there. They had lots of forestry crews, and sometimes those forestry crews were working yeah, wow. within a hundred yep. meters of the boundary of hunting. Right, so they have these other rules available as well. Um, mm. They basically say if there are hunting, if there are forestry crews working, mm. you have to give them extra yeah. distance of coverage, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and that's written on your permit. Um, and there's also other components of it that say you're allowed to hunt hares, rabbits, dogs, pigs, goats, deer, but you are not allowed to hunt any yes. species of domestic animal like sheep, cows, etc., mm. etc. Yep. More than once I've come across cows yeah. in the bush. More than sheep once I've bush. come across deer yeah. in the bush. I don't deer um, um, sheep in the bush. Mm. We, as hunters, yep. we know to leave them alone. Yeah. Right? So, so yeah. we can work harmoniously with whoever yeah. has um, access to that land at the same time. As the way to kind of – It would so, be stupid not yeah. to. The way to kind of think about it is it's, mm. it's, it's very much yep. like a driving license. It's like here are the road rules, you know, to this yep. place, here are the rules. Yep. And those rules may change – you know, and we will update you. And so, for instance, you know, uh, when, that's for instance, right. there's a fire ban, you can't hunt at all. So that's it. You just can't go in, guys, and you go, okay, sure. And, you know, you, and you've got to go on to the fire. You, again, one of the things I really like about the New South Wales system yes. is there is an onus like on, on the you road. to be a grown-up. Okay, so you mm. – that's right. Like yeah. I got my license. You said I can yeah. drive. That's I can it. buy a car now. I'm a grown up. If I break it, you ping me. But what you don't do is you don't kind of. Right. There's you, no one in the know, back. You've got a responsibility, and it's not a right to have lean a an over a an an license, just like um, a vehicle license. Mm. It can be taken anytime. And when we were down That's there, different. you know, and that when we were down there, because and again, another interesting thing that. You know, again, when you talk to people about public land hunting and they kind of go, oh, you know, it's about the danger type thing, you know, the, the risk, yeah. which honestly hasn't yeah. played yeah. out. I mean, playing footy is far more dangerous, you know, <laughs> literally, statistically, <laughs> is that you will meet people there who aren't on the R license, but who are just as, mm. um, have just as much right to be there. So you'll meet guys riding motorbikes mm. and you'll meet, you know, there's, a, there's yep. a, you know, quite a few stories about, meeting a Polish <laughs> bloody um, 
mushroom pickers mushroom in the forest. The forest is in the and yeah. there's and there's also mm. this nundle being gold. There's fossicking going on in there as well. And I got a mate who who we hunt with mm. out of um off um uh, Simon out of out of uh, yep. Toowoomba. He's Sorry, Mark, a I, mad kid. I just had a, um, a recollection you know, of the so half, he goes, oh. um, cloved mm -hmm. uh, French backpackers on the Thorsbourne Trail that we came across. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you're right. You, you never know what you're going to find in the bush. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. that's it. So, you know, it's you get <laughs> yep. all of these kind of things and you just go, okay, sure. Um, there's people mm. over there riding horses. There's people over there riding motorbikes. From a, from a safety perspective, though, and Mark's talked about this a number of times, hunters oh. are those that want to be as far from away people. from all that's right. those people as possible. So you actually bumping into them in the bush is very rare. Yeah. But in the, you know, the public park or, you know, where there's mm. long dock toilets and, Camping areas, yeah. You the reality is most of the animals are run away from those people that are making noise anyway. They're generally so, very yeah. interested in what we're doing. That's it. That's that's, <laughs> that's one of those the memes, really... The memes suggest that the deer <laughs> hang out at your uh, campsite once you've left it. That is so true. <laughs> that, you know, that's a really important, that's a really they, um, important point about it. That's yeah. smart. They could read a book, I reckon, sometimes. <laughs> that's it. Mm. You know, that's an important point. When people talk about, you know, <laughs> oh, the, 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 the risk access, oh, look, I'm a national park user. I don't want anyone with a gun near me. You know what? I don't want to be near you with a gun because you're a noisy, smelly, metal-clanging oh, backpacker. I'm going, you're going to be here. I'm going to be so far away mm. from you because that's where all the animals are, and that's another thing. I've hunted yep, yep. I've hunted Pilliga, which is a big chunk of dirt. Um, for a number of years, and I can count literally on my hands the time I've met people who are, for want of a better word, tourists or non-park users. Nundle's different because it's close to, um, you know, Tamworth, mm. and it's got a it's got a really good reputation. And there's a lot of people there, but you go to somewhere like Pilliga, twice or once. Uh, there's an old campground mm. that we actually use that is kind of in disrepair, and once a guy and his wife in an RV turned up. And they said, well, they looked at us and they said, look, we actually said, if you go down this road about a car, about an hour, there's a much better, nicer campsite with drop toilets and that stuff. And we ended up being, <laughs> you know, quasi tourist guides for them. And another time we were in there and there was yep. a guy who was just doing Anyone. his big tours yeah. on his motorbike. But other than that, you don't see anyone because they don't just want, don't it's not, mm -hmm. it's not, it's not. You yeah. know the rocks, or it's not. It's not Noosa National Park. It's not the glamorous stuff. We we want to, we want to your, we want the scrungy, exactly. you know, dirty where all, all the game is. To your previous point, though, about um, you know um, a lot of the greenies and or, or activists showing up and you mm. know being a real right pain, you know, an open day on duck season and those sorts of things and doing yep. the wrong thing. The R license system yep. just hasn't got those issues because it's an open mm. year. Mm. It's, you know, you, you don't give an activist a date that, to show up yeah, and a party um, because it's an all-year-round thing. So it's sort of made all that noise disappear as yeah. well. Yeah. You know, literally, mm -hmm. for me to hunt Nundle, it's a seven-hour drive. Yep. And, you know, and, you know, so that's usually a couple of fuel stops. Yeah. And I spend lots and lots of money once across the border because that's basically when you start, you know, after you've done your three hours, you think, I'm thinking about getting something to eat now. And you're going into a part of mm -hmm. even a, a technically a busy forest like Nundle, you don't see generally anyone other other than people who are free camping. So you know, doing tourism, doing you know, traveling, and they they're free camping because you can do that in a, in a state forest. 
you don't see many of those people, but you see some of those people. But, you know, again, in Nundle, the majority of people, or you don't really see them, but the majority of activity yeah, right. we saw was logging trucks going past our camp, you know, in, in the morning mm. because they were pulling timber out and, that's, and they were, and, you know, we'd go up the road and we'd give them a wave and we'd go past them because that was an exclusion zone. We weren't allowed to go there. We'd go past you know, them and go 10 and k's up the road. I know there'll be Queenslanders that haven't got an, a full understanding of what happens in New South Wales that would, would really benefit from listening to this and mm. as part of the podcast today because um, people need to have it yeah. be educated on how it mm. works in other states uh, so that they can you know properly advocate for it in Queensland because um, – like I said, we did get some negative feedback from some people that just didn't understand yeah, how the sure. RLIs worked um, in New South Wales, for example. And then yeah. when we tried to explain it to them, uh, mm. they didn't seem to have a problem with it. But, yeah, the more people that are educated, the better it is for us all. Yeah. And, and, and in Queensland, to me, it's kind of, mm. you know, yeah. there'll, there'll be more yeah, air gaps between people and hunters. You know, it, mm. there's a you know mm. crown land or whatever we want to call it. Let's call it public land. On the other side of the, the dividing thin, range, yeah, you know, right. the population starts getting pretty thin pretty quick. You know, and then and then you know you go, okay, I'm I'm here at this particular location. Exactly, there is yeah. no one else here. You know, I'm the only one here. Yep. So, um, before we wrap this up, and there might be one or two other topics we cover. Um, Let's do we it. Always ask some seriously oh, tough yes. questions. About, about yeah, we 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 warmed you up. So these are there's a rapid fire, um, yeah, hard hitting questions for people to get to know Nick the man. Uh, and I'll kick off with uh, with the first one, uh, and that is when you're on the road, travelling, you know, around your your areas. Uh, Will you? Oh, there's so drink? many good coffee shops coffee up and down the coast here in the Hinchinbrook electorate. You don't have to drink shit, mate. <laughs> <laughs> boom, boom. Good answer. Good answer. Okay. But, so if we're hunting and I say, you want a sandwich, and I say, do you want a ham and cheese sandwich, does that mean immediately that <laughs> well, if you the ham cheese and tomato sanger, I'd pull the tomato off. <laughs> There you go. There we go. Absolutely. So when, you ma when a man says ham and cheese, he means ham and cheese. <laughs> All right. Once you've burned the roof your mouth with that tomato uh, and you're cruising on probably down Probably something. Road, um, oh, let me think. There's probably a little bit of ACDC or something on one of the local radio stations and one of the rock channels here. <laughs> Us. Okay. Very good. Nice. Good. i got one more while the others are thinking of it. Um, if you were to recommend yep. a book to the listeners, and that doesn't need to be hunting yeah, related, no, but just there, a there's book one that I think everyone should read. It's, read. it's like a book called Blue books, Ocean so Strategies, and it's all yeah. about um, you know basically bringing yourself out of a, a market and into a market where you don't have too many competitors. So, um, and it's not completely reinventing um, and, and coming up with new ideas sometimes. Sometimes it's changing the idea you have so you don't have a competitor anymore. So Circus de Soleil is one of the first um, examples they used in, used in this book. 
And, for example, so circuses, they were a dying breed. People didn't want to go and see the animals anymore, low-value customer. Um, but they didn't want to kill off the idea of circus altogether. So they went for a different market, someone that's willing to spend, you know, $300 on a ballet ticket. So, therefore, you had to bring the production up, got rid of the animals. They were hard to look after, those sorts of things. So, eventually, they created a new product that was no longer in the, um, the market of the rest of their competitors. So Blue Ocean Strategy is something that everyone should read. Yeah. Yep. Good one. I like that a lot. That's good. <laughs> I've that one down. Oh, dude. Mm. You haven't had ABC Jamba microphone in the face, gentlemen. That wasn't hard at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, true enough, true enough. We haven't. We have a friend who um, uh, has been on the podcast who unfortunately is, is often one of the ones they knock on his door. He's, he can tell you some stories about that, but uh, no, we haven't had that yet. Yeah, great. All right. Well, um, just before we close off, if there's um, is there anything we haven't covered, Nick, that you'd like to, to discuss? You know, I think we touched on it earlier today, but I think, you know, everything's strength in numbers. Uh, I've recently got my um, my Category H firearm, my, my pistol licence, and, you know, I didn't get it because I want to give up every other recreational activity I've got so I can go and become the best pistol shooter in the world. But um, I think when it comes to things like uh, those sorts of activities, the more people that get involved in it or hold those licenses, the better. Um, that's why I got into uh, getting my pistol license. Now, you don't want to get to a stage at any stage where – uh, the government looks at even you know hunters, for example. Oh, you know there isn't too many hunters in Queensland. They don't have their voice heard. So um, we might just put a line through their sport. Like you know, who's it really going to upset? So I, I encourage people yeah. if you're involved in an activity, whether it's sports, mm-hmm. shooting, hunting, or, or whatever it is, get involved with a local association, join a club, get involved, make sure that you're doing it in an organised manner because uh, that's what keeps the um, the government on guard. Yep. Yeah, I, I love the term, um, the world is run by yeah, those that awesome. show up. Mm. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Legend. Yeah, I, I think, I think that's the title of this one. Yep, very good. <laughs> All right. Mark, did you want to wrap up? Uh, you can do it, Ian, yep. if you don't mind. I'm writing down this, the world is run by those <laughs> who turn up. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing the same Thanks, thing. Again. But look, um, I'm just going to say, Nick, it's been a great chat. Yeah. It's been it's been a, a little bit of time coming mm. and, and organising it, but it's been really interesting. It's always fun to to talk to someone about what goes on in the world outside of um, you know planning a hunt and going out hunting because there's, there's lots to this subject. Mm. But there's there's certainly a lot of people that advocate for us. And, and as you said, um, you know, if you're sitting sitting at the bar and someone wants to come over and have a chat to you about uh, not necessarily politics, but um, you've just got to remember sometimes that someone's done a lot of hard work yeah, and it, you allow you to do the things. Yeah, and it just doesn't doing. happen. That's, that's right. A, that's There's a lot of people out there working in the background to protect the mm, lifestyle yeah, definitely that's right now. So, yeah, it's good to, good to acknowledge that. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. Mate, thank you very much for your time. I know you're, you're a busy man, um, and it's yeah. been really quite enlightening. I'm, I must admit there's a... Really give me a couple of things to think about. And I, I think yeah, the world no. is run by those who no. turn up is, it, is going to be the title. I'm glad you're all about able to get something one. out of today's uh, chat because I <laughs> certainly did. And I hope the listeners uh, will enjoy uh, the topics we hit. And, uh, John, I, I, I'm looking forward Definitely. to trying this snake sausage yeah. at some stage with uh, <laughs> entrails, it sounds. Yeah. 
Oh. <laughs> we'll that. Excellent. It slices it. off a bit like salami. Oh, it did. Yeah, make sure we, yeah. we'll make sure you get to try that. Legend. Just make it look hey, like a carpet. Thanks a lot, gentlemen. It's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure. <laughs>